life ever thrown you a curveball that you weren't sure what to do with? You know, the kind where you think someone should really do something about this. Have you ever thought maybe that someone is me and then found yourself on a grand adventure you never saw coming? Me too. As a special needs mom, I have been saddened by what's available to my son. But instead of wallowing in it, I decided to do something about it. Along the way, I'm meeting extraordinary people and having the most wonderful experiences I never thought I'd have. I'm so inspired by what's happening around me that I want to share it all with you. Living Your Legacy is a community where ordinary people who have been called to create something bigger than themselves can come together to be inspired, connect, learn, and live into the legacies they want to see in the world. I'm your host, Michelle Slaney Travato, and this is the Living Your Legacy podcast. Hello, everyone. Michelle Slaney Travato here. I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of the Living Your Legacy podcast. As always, I am so excited to talk to people who are legacy makers and the professionals who support them. And today I've got a lady who is both. She is making her own legacy and she is helping to support other people who are creating their legacies. And that's always exciting to me to talk to people who are in both realms of this. So today I would like to introduce you to this extraordinary woman. Her name is Erin Schneider. She's the mom of two kids and one of her children happens to be autistic. She is also the founder and CEO of Mountain Summit Coaching, where she helps other families of artistic children with their journey into the wide world of autism. Welcome, Erin. Super excited to have you. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. So, Erin, generally speaking, um, I always start out with this. When someone is in grade four and the teacher asks you what you want to be when you grow up, a coach for autistic kids is not usually the thing people answer, <laughs> not in the top 10 answers. So tell me, there's got to be a story about how you went from what you were doing in your life to this. I'd like to hear that story. Yeah, yeah, great. I love how you say that. Uh, yes, absolutely. In grade four, I was not even aware of coaching, didn't know that it even existed and definitely didn't know anything about autism at the time. So <laughs> Uh, yeah. So how I got here in this place is my son. Um, so my son, Henry is, um, almost seven and it was his journey with autism. So from, from the minute he was born to his diagnosis and beyond is really what got me here to this, in this moment. Um, when my son was diagnosed at the age of four, it was very overwhelming. You know, we're given this diagnosis and then we're sent on our way and it's just like, okay, good luck. Um, and we, we had to figure it out. And here we were at the very beginning of COVID, which was super fun. Um, so, you know, we're all homebound. We're all scared. We all don't know what's going on in the world. And it just all of a sudden, everything changed. And so it was going through that process of being very alone and feeling overwhelmed that I wanted to ensure that no family had to go through this alone and no parent had to feel how we felt. So that has been my goal since then. And that's why I created Mountain Summit Coaching is to ensure that families have somebody to walk with on this journey with autism. I love that. And I want to just pick up on a thread of one of the things you said there about feeling that post-diagnosis, you were very alone. 
This is a common thread that I am hearing from many of our legacy makers mm-hmm. that this feeling of, oh my Lord, this is completely overwhelming. I don't know what to do next. I don't even know where to, like people say, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. You're like, I don't even know what that step is. What's right. the next step? What do I do next? Now for you, compounded with well, now we're in COVID and I can't go out and see anybody. I got to figure out how am I going to keep my children safe Mm -hmm. and where do I go next? So how did you navigate that? I just went right into, so I'm a, I'm a doer. And so I, I had prepared myself for the diagnosis. I was already pretty much sure that that was what it was going to be. And as soon as I got that, this is it okay, here we go. I went into, into doing mode. I just had to get stuff done. So I started researching what is autism? Um, you know, what are the services that are available? And I just started reaching out to providers and finding out. And I started going into Facebook groups of actually autistic individuals and trying to learn from them. Like what is autism? I want to make sure I'm going to do this right for my kid. I, you know, I, I heard about a lot of trauma with autistic adults and and what they went through in their life. And I wanted to obviously try to avoid that as much as possible. So I just went into research mode and went into, into, to doing. And so it was scary. It was overwhelming because, you know, as a parent, I, I don't have autism myself. So it was very much like, I hope I'm making the best decisions for my son. I hope I'm doing everything right for him. And that's all I could do. I mean, I'm, I know we made mistakes along the way, but it was really just about action and getting in there and getting set up with services as soon as possible. And it was scary. I mean, with COVID, it's just like, do we have people come into our house and help our son? Do we take him to a center? What's the best way to go about this? And, you know, my husband and I had a a lot of conversations and we ended up bringing providers into the house. They were of course masked up and all that stuff, but that felt like the safest mode at that time. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was, it was overwhelming. It was really scary. So once again, I want to pick up on a couple of threads of all of the things that you said there. Um, yes, again, our legacy makers say a lot of the same things mm-hmm. that there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of unknown. There's mm-hmm. a lot of research and then there's taking action. That that is the only way to make things happen is when we get into action. Now, of course, with autism, the research can also be overwhelming because it's an entire spectrum of how it impacts people. And then you add on to that the layer of individual differences, Mm -hmm. um, right, in respect to all that. So that in itself, you're like, okay, well, now I've learned about this, but I'm not sure my child fits with that. Um, And now I'm learning about the other thing and I'm not sure my child fits with that. So mm-hmm. I totally understand how that, how that would feel for you. And I love the part of taking action, doing the research, doing some homework, contacting organizations and people, and then looking at, okay, now what action pieces can we take out of that for our son? So mm-hmm. tell me how that translates into your coaching. Um, how, how is it that you serve people in this realm? Yeah, great question. So what I really wanted to do is concentrate on supporting the parents because the parents are the ones, especially when you have littles, you know, you're not going to have a four-year-old calling up providers, trying to find their services. You're going to have the parent doing all of that. So my goal is really to concentrate on the, the, the parents. And my goal is to educate, to empower, 
Like that is really my goal. I want to ensure that I'm doing the best for the autistic community by educating parents on what autism is, how, how it's different, how, you know, how each child can be completely different. Um, and really support them on, on their individual journey, not somebody else's journey, not my journey, but their journey and what their journey looks like. And so, you know, every parent's different. What they're going to come to me is going to be completely different from the next parent. And I love that. That's, that's what's, I think keeps me so refreshed every single day is like, I don't know what I'm necessarily going to get into a phone call with. Um, you know, parents will come to me with a lot of overwhelm, whether it be like, they have a child who's just diagnosed and they're just the beginning of their journey, or they have a teenager who's been diagnosed for years. And they're like, I'm just so overwhelmed. I feel like I'm butting heads with my child all the time where there's constant friction, constant fighting going on. Help us. What, what, what do we do in these situations? And, um, it's really educating the parents and oftentimes they already know what to do. They just need that support system and somebody to say, you got this, you're doing all right. Um, and so it really, it really depends. Every family is so different. Um, I concentrate a lot on self-care because I think as parents, as caregivers, we tend to forget about ourselves and always concentrate on everybody else. And I think the minute you have that child that comes into your home, it's just like, it's give, 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 give. And you sometimes forget to give to yourself. And so, um, you know, I always use the bucket analogy. It's like, if your bucket's empty, you can't give to anybody else. So you got to make sure that bucket's full. So that's something I incorporate with all families, no matter where they're at in their journey is making sure that they're taking care of themselves as well. But it's really, you know, it's, it's honestly for me, just making sure nobody's alone, that they have somebody to talk to. And it's a judgment-free zone where they can come to me and say anything they want. And I'm not going to judge because we've all had thoughts or just thoughts, you know, it's not like you're going to act on things. Um, and so we've all had thoughts about this, this journey and what it means and and what we can do. But, um, at the end of the day, it's, it's just supporting parents on making them feel less alone. And we need that for yes. sure. So many parents need that. I think, well, everybody on the planet these days needs that kind of support. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I want to circle back to a couple of things you said there, um, particularly parents who are dealing with a new diagnosis. There is this really interesting juxtaposition between overwhelm, grief, and fear. And I'm going to get circle back to that and hope, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you dare to hope, but these other things are screaming at you that there is no hope. So again, pulling those apart, definitely hearing the term, whatever the diagnosis is in this case, autism Mm -hmm. can be completely overwhelming because what this means is the dreams, the goals that you had for your child have now been derailed Mm -hmm. and you're going to have to learn a whole new world in order to parent this child, a world that's outside your own experience, your own knowledge, your own skill set. Hence the overwhelm. Now you're like, "Mm, I got to do all this in addition to learning how to be a parent. Right. Okay. That's a lot. Then you got the stages of grief because hearing those words for some people like yourself, you felt pretty sure this is what you were going to hear. So you were prepared for that. You did use those words. I was prepared for that diagnosis. Lots of people are not. And that can send them spiraling down the whole set of stages of grief. Um, and, And those are messy and definitely not linear. 
Yeah. Right. They're not linear in any way. People go back and forth between different stages as different things come up um, with their child, with development. I mean, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, then there's fear, which is in itself a paralytic. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so afraid. Now I, I don't know what to do. And of course, there's also the fear of, okay, I'm just going to, it's hard to phrase this, but I've just been told that my child has a diagnosis that in the world makes them seen as less than. Yep. So how do I not see my child as less than in all of this? Mm -hmm. What kind of advice might you give a parent if they're in that place? How do I not see my child as less than or me as less than for being less than able to cope with this? Yeah, completely. And, you know, and just because I was prepared for the diagnosis, I still went through all of those feelings. You know, I still had my moment of grief. I still had my moment of anger. Um, you know, you have to go through all of that, all the cycles. And I talked to a lot of parents and I talked to many parents who know something is different with their child. They don't know what it is and they don't even want to think about autism. I remember I had, I met with one couple and the dad got viscerally anger, angry with me when I just even mentioned autism. I wasn't saying that their child has autism. I'm not a doctor. I can't diagnose. That's not my job, but I was just mentioning it and he got really angry with me. And, and I get that, you know, it's just this, this fear. And I think society plays a real big role in this because so many people think of the rain man, you know, the, that old movie, was it the eighties movie with Tom? Mm -hmm. Um, oh, what's his Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, wonderful movie, but that's kind of what they assume autism is. And it's a spectrum. And, and we say that for a reason if you meet one autistic person, you've met one autistic person, you know, you're not meeting everybody the same. And so I really have to kind of first I sit there and I, I acknowledge those feelings like, yep, those are valid feelings. You are allowed to be angry. You are allowed to be scared, you know, just, and this is kind of how I work with, with children too. It's just acknowledging feelings means that, okay, feelings aren't a bad thing to have. Mm -hmm. And if you're feeling sad, if you're feeling, you know, confused, if you're feeling angry, whatever the feeling that you're going through, it's valid. And again, thoughts are only thoughts. It doesn't mean you're going to live in that forever and ever, but it's a valid feeling. And then let's talk about it. Why are you feeling this way? What makes you feel so scared or so angry about this? Why did you get so mad at me when I just even mentioned autism? Well, because I want my child to be able to get married and go to college and do all these things, because at the end of the day, as parents, we do have some dreams and hopes for our child, even if we accept all their differences and, you know, whatever they decide to do with their life, we always have these hopes for them. And I, I think it's really hard, especially for certain parents, they want them to go in, in, in that order. Like, yep, they have to go to college. They have to get married. They have to have kids. You know, it's all those things. And I asked, you know, and I had to be very gentle about it, but it's like, what, why do you think that he can't have all those things? You know, what, why do you think this is now done? And, and I think by questioning it, it puts parents into a different frame, frame of mind. It's like, oh, well, I just assume that he can't have all these things, you know, it's just, and that's made, but in reality, we don't need progress that can be made in such a short period of time. Um, and I know so many autistic individuals who live very independent, very stable lives, you know, but again, we might have to make some accommodations for them 
Mm-hmm. And I, I sometimes think that people think accommodations is a bad word. And I think we all have accommodations. We all need things, extra supports. Um, and so it's really just, it's accepting the parents where they're at. And sometimes you have to go through that. Some, it's going to take some parents longer. It's going to take some parents less amount of time. My husband, I don't think was ready for that diagnosis when we got it. And so he had to kind of go through that a little bit longer than I did. Um, and so it's really just letting parents grieve and acknowledging that it's okay to grieve. It's okay to have these feelings, but just because this is what society says does not mean this is exactly how it's going to be for your child. Those are some very wise words right there. Um, because I do think, you know, when parents, any parent has a child, adopts a child, fosters a child, we, we hold hope, yep. hold hope dear for those children, for what their lives could look like, mm-hmm. right? All the amazing things they could accomplish, mm-hmm. the, the love they can experience and share, um, being a productive member of society, finding a career they love or multiple careers they love, right. um, finding someone to love and to love them. All those things are such things that, you know, we want because we know the joy that those can bring to people. And you're right, getting a diagnosis and part of the diagnosis for sure in my own experience has been that um, the doctors need to share with you what it is, but also how it could show up. Mm -hmm. And so they they do share worst case scenario, which if you're anything like our family was right about the point that fear set in oh my gosh, this could be my kid. Mm-hmm. Like this could be how it's going to impact my child. This could be how it's going to impact um, our family. How are we going to handle this? And of course, then the brain spirals into all kinds of places of crazy. Um, yeah. And the, all the what ifs and you know, fear just takes over and sends you Absolutely. down a real big, deep, dark rabbit hole. So how do you, or what would be some advice that you have for parents around the idea of holding hope for their children? Mm -hmm. I love that question. I think that's great. I say, first of all, you know, educate yourself, read, um, listen to podcasts, you know, join the U.S. Autism Society, um, listen to interviews by actually autistic individuals. I think that right there is so important is listen to autistic adults and what they're saying, because when you see these autistic adults get up on stage or present or, you know, go on a podcast, they are so articulate. They are so amazing. And I think that that right there takes a lot of the stigma away and that takes a lot of the fear away. Um, so if you can surround yourself by, by individuals who are neurodivergent, but also surround yourself by other parents that are going through this as well. I think, you know, they always say it takes a village in this case, I think, I think in any case it does to raise children, you need a village, but when you have a a child with a disability, absolutely. You need that village. So, you know, I would say step one, you found me. That's great. I'm here to support you in any way that I can, but here's some books to read. Here's um, some podcasts to, to listen to. Here's, you know, definitely go find these authors, these speakers and listen to them and pay attention to them. And surround yourself in that community, because I think right there, that's going to take away all of your fears, because you're going to see these amazing individuals doing all the amazing things. And it's it's really spectacular. So I think, honestly, education, and again, that's going back to educate to empower, 
is so important and so vital in these moments because it can feel overwhelming. It can feel really scary. And once again, society and TV and movies, they've all kind of put the stigma on autism and they make it look like a very specific um, presentation. And it's, it's very different. I mean, everybody's so different. And so I get it. Doctors have to kind of tell you the worst case scenario, which I get it. And I don't at the same time, because I do think it, it puts a bunch of fear and panic. And like you said, then your mind just starts going and it's, it's impossible to kind of rein in those thoughts. Um, but doctors are telling that because that could be the scenario they want to prepare you, but most likely that's not going to be the scenario. And if it is, there's support out there to, to help you with that. So, um, every step of the way. Absolutely true. Um, and I can certainly speak to that. I think it's really important. Personally, I can speak to that. Um, it's really important as the fact that we look at, um, who you're surrounding yourself with and, and, and a good question to ask, um, would be, cause you get a lot of advice, a lot of unsolicited advice, oh, so as much a parent of a special needs child. Um, everybody's got an opinion on it yep. and they would like you to, to know that opinion. And they're certainly feeling that their opinion is correct. Um, and sometimes it's opinions that make you scratch your head. Sometimes it's opinions that make you scratch your head mm -hmm. because you're like, mm, I'm just not seeing how this is going to connect with my child or my life. Right. And so being aware, being aware that you, um, you do need to have, uh, I guess, sort of a filter that you listen to the advice from listening to that advice. So who are you choosing to listen to? And you've recommended some good things. Clearly medical professionals, if they're giving you some diagnosis, if they are the therapists that are working with your children, these are people who are specialists and are mm -hmm. trained in the areas that they are speaking to you in. So yep. worth listening to. Other parents who may be further down the line, definitely worth listening to, to at least hear their perspective. It may not may not be your experience, but their perspectives are worth listening to because they're on a similar path. Mm -hmm. And um, if nothing else, then you got some other people to call on when the days are hard. Exactly. Um, you know, surrounding yourself with, as you suggested, surrounding yourself with people who uh, perhaps have that diagnosis um, and are living their own successful lives to give you a different perspective than, you know, the fear one in your head is telling you mm -hmm. great strategies there. And then choosing the best for your child. I mean, we are the experts on our children. We live with them. We know them. We know what they like. We know what they don't like. If I asked you to give me a list of things that your child does not like, you'd be able to riddle it off very quickly. Oh, it's very long. Yeah. <laughs> and then what does your child really like? Again, you'd be able to riddle that off very quickly looking yep. at the filter of now, how do I take all this expert advice and filter it through what my child likes and doesn't like what I know will work and what I think doesn't work mm -hmm. is so important. And hold Holding that hope that your child will be successful, mm -hmm. maybe redefining what successful is. As you alluded to earlier, parents sometimes have a real clear thought in their mind. This is my definition of success mm -hmm. and my child must fit with this definition. Mm -hmm. How about readjusting the definition of success? So how would you suggest that parents do that if they're very stuck in a particular mindset of how success should look? How can they readjust it? What are some steps they can take? 
I think that's a great question. And and honestly, it's not something that's going to, most parents, it's not going to something that's going to happen overnight. They kind of need to sit with this and see their child as this person, you know, identified as autistic. And I think that's really huge is it's not going to happen over, you know, if, especially if you have a person very specific, they must go to married, have kids, they must have, you know, this type of job, whatever it may be, that person might take some time to start seeing things a little bit differently. And usually what I'm going to recommend is I'm going to say, watch your child because your child is overcoming so much more than any of us have to overcome um, and see the progress that they're making. Like I remember when my son first started therapy after we got his diagnosis, there were some really hard days, <laughs> you know, there was really hard days. It was hard. It was, you know, having different therapists in, not being able to see friends, go to the playground, all those things because of COVID. It just felt like, man, are we ever going to get out of this? But then all of a sudden we saw a shift and we started seeing our son make differences. One of the first things we saw happening right away is all of a sudden he would have just, he would just start talking and, and like sentences. And we're just like, whoa, this is huge. And it felt bigger because he had been delayed and because he had to overcome all these different things. But we were just like, okay, wow, he is capable and he's doing so much. And I can see it in my son every single day. I know he has to work harder than other kids. I know he has to put twice as much effort in as most kids. It's like compared to my daughter, I see the struggles that he has that just comes naturally easy to my daughter. And I'm honestly amazed and just in awe of him every single day because he is doing that. And because he's, he's so strong and he's so smart. And that's what I say to parents is like, start watching your kids look for those little changes because sometimes those little changes just seem like every single day, you don't notice it, but really pay attention to those because those up to really big changes. And so when parents start actually paying attention to their child for who they are, not for what they want them to be, then I think it's a whole new relationship that can be built and they can see their child for who they are and what they are capable of. And yes, that might be different than what their dreams are. They still might have a career. They still might be able to get married and go to college and do all those things. It just might look a little bit different. It might not be a nine to five job that's okay. You can be super successful and not work a nine to five job. Um, you know, I just spoke to a, a neurodiverse individual the other day and she's like, I started my own therapy practice because I can do no more than five hours a day, but I'm successful and I'm, I'm making a living and I'm doing really well. And she owns her own business. I mean, it was so great to talk to her. So, you know, allowing yourself to really see your child for who they are, I think is the number one thing. And over time, hopefully, you can start seeing that your child is going to be capable of doing so many things that you could never imagine. And they're going to just surprise you and amaze you every single day. That is so well said and truthfully completely resonated with me um, in terms of how I view my child. And one of the things that I remember feeling, you know, he has multiple diagnoses, my son. Um, and so there were multiple specialists and multiple worst case scenarios that were shared with us um, that left us reeling quite a lot. Um, but one thing that got said, and it's in line with what you just said, was around seeking, 
seeking opportunities to see the amazing things in your child. So we all know those parents who brag nonstop about their kids, how amazing their kid is and how successful and how this and how that. And that used to actually make me feel small and sad um, when my son was very young because I wondered what I could brag about. And then I thought to myself, why are you wondering? Go find it. And being aware that it's a circumstance where when you get those diagnoses, you feel very out of control. You can't control what is happening in your life, in your child's life. Sometimes you feel your child is out of control. You don't know how to help. And so there's this out of control, helpless feeling. Yeah. And I learned very quickly that there was something I could control. I could control what I said about my son. Mm -hmm. I could control how I saw him. I love that. And I, I would share that advice with other parents because here's what I know. And this is, comes back to like the whole idea of unsolicited advice and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Um, People hear disability. So general society, people hear disability. They see only disability. They treat disability. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of disses in there. Mm -hmm. So if we stop looking at the disses and we start looking at the ability, we can take some control. So I, when I speak about my son, I will tell you things like he smiles with his entire body. If you've Mm -hmm. ever seen someone do that, it is the most infectious smile you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And he lights up a room when he walks into it. Like absolutely lights up a room. He is charming. And oh my, does he know when to use it? (laughs) So if I start talking to you like that, when you see him and meet him, that's the first stuff you see. Yep. You're looking for it because I told you it was there. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you don't see a big bundle of disabilities. Completely. Exactly. I love that you say that it's so important because it's true. I mean, when you walk into a room, you want people to see you for who you are, not for, for your disability, not for you know, your shortcomings. I put in quotes, not that a disability mm-hmm. is a shortcoming by any means, but you know, you want people to see that. And I, I love that. I mean, with my son, Henry, I mean, we had multiple interviews with um, teachers or, you know, parent teacher conferences and multiple teachers be like, he is the most authentic person I've ever met. And it's just like, yes, thank you for seeing that in him. Thank you for saying that. Because that's true. I mean, that's Henry. You walk in and it's like, you, you know exactly who Henry is. And um, I think it's so important. And I, I, and I do. I, I, and I, that's why it's so important for parents to really start looking at who their children are and not what society is putting a label on them. Um, because those labels can be so scary. They can, absolutely. And I love that piece. Because now all of a sudden, in one small way, I had a measure of control. I had a measure of control over messaging. I had a measure of control over how I could teach people in my life to see my son. And let me tell you, sometimes that was it. That was all the control I had. Everything else felt like it was so beyond me, but I could control that. And looking at, I mean, we all want as we've alluded to a few times now, success for our children, looking at redefining maybe what success is, what success can be, 
for our child, how we can help them define success, how we can live in the hope of them being successful. Once you redefine it, it's kind of easy to live into it, right? Once we start looking at the messaging that's going out there into the world, there's some measure of control that we can take around how we can help other people and educate people around us how to look at, engage with, and interact with our children. And that can help live into the legacy that our children will be, right? That piece of it. Um, So tell me a little bit more Let's just say someone you someone has received diagnosis. We talked about this. And now what do we do with that information? Let's look at our children and see it. Let's talk about somebody who maybe is a little further down the line. Now they've yeah. got a teenager. They live with the diagnosis for a while. We've got hormonal teenagers are no fun for the most oh, part. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> um, any parent will tell you that. There's a great <laughs> meme out there that says um, parents of teens understand why some animals eat their children. Yes. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So true. So now they've got this diagnosis. They've been living with it for a while. They've got Mm -hmm. this hormonal teen. I mean, now a hormonal teen is their prefrontal cortex. That's where all the adult thoughts and behaviors and all that kind of stuff, rational thinking exists. It is not fully developed. Nope. What kind of advice would you give for them to hold hope for their child? Because it can be a kind of hopeless time in there where they're like, I don't know where my child went, but yeah. this angry ogre is living in my house. And yeah. what do I do now? Yeah. Um, great question. And and to be honest, it's not going to be all that different than what I would tell a family of a neurotypical child um, who has a teenager. It's like hormonal changes are going on. You know, you're going to see sometimes parents will say to me like, oh my gosh, I feel like we've gone back 10 years. You know, we're living with a toddler again. And it's like, yep. <laughs> you know, those executive functioning skills are are still processing. We're still working on those things. You know, they're constantly nagging. They would say that I'm like, I'm nagging at my child all the time. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty typical. And so some of those things are going to take a little bit longer to, to get caught up. So it might be, you might, you feel like you might in this never ending cycle. It's just like, oh my gosh, I can't tell my child one more time to pick up their towel off the floor. You know, it's just like, I can't do this. Um, but, you know, it's really let's let's go and simplify it. What worked when they were a toddler? Maybe we go back and like, you know, honestly, I, I can't tell you how many times I bring chore charts out with families again when they have teenagers. It's like those visuals are so helpful for anybody. Um, and especially if you have an autistic a teenager, it's really helpful to go back to kind of the basics. So I tell my parents, first of all, breathe. You know, again, that's where that self-care comes in. That's where that self-regulation is so important because we do, we have to breathe through it, you know, whether, you know, you're used to your child tantruming or not tantruming, but melting down as a, as a child. And then now you have a teenager who's just mopey all the time. who doesn't want to talk to you. It's just like you, you kind of find yourself going back into the same, in that same space, internal space where you have to like breathe and allow yourself to regulate yourself. Because if you're not regulated, they're not going to be regulated. So that's number one, take care, take care of yourself. Um, do what you need to do for yourself. And then two, find what works for your child. And what works for your child is going to be, again, completely different than somebody else. Do you need to go back to a chore chart every day? Do you need to have, you know, accommodations at school? Like, are we really struggling at school? Maybe we need to go back to the IEP team and really talk to them about, okay, junior high is totally different than grade school and high school is totally different than junior high. 
and these transition classes and, and this constant change is really difficult for my child. So what can we do to help them out? Those are all things that absolutely you can get accommodations on your IEP. So do that. Um, do we need to go back to setting reminders on phones? You know, what does it look like for your child? And then I think the bigger complication that parents are obviously more worried about is the depression we see with our teenagers. That is the number one concern parents come to me with. It's like either socialization, they're like, I want my child to have friends or my child is super depressed. They maybe have attempted suicide, you know, maybe they have thoughts of suicide. These are all really scary things that parents have to deal with. And I think it's just um, exasperated when you have an autistic child. And so let's make sure we have the right support. Is your child, is he, are they in therapy? Are we getting the right therapist? Because maybe they are in therapy, but maybe it's not the right therapy. You know, for a lot of, you know, autistic individuals, they come to me and say they're doing CBT. Well, maybe they need DBT. Maybe they need, you know, EMDR. There's so many different types of therapy that are out there. Let's find the right one. Um, and oftentimes these kids too have been seeing one therapist since they were eight years old. Well, that might not be the right therapist for you anymore. You know, maybe you've grown out of that therapist and that's okay. So it's really trying to bring in the kid and see what they need in those situations. Um, you know, so that's one thing. And when I when parents say to me, like, oh, I want my child to have friends. Okay, well, does your child have any friends? Oh, yeah, they've got one friend. Okay, well, does your child seem lonely? Do they, I mean, are they upset? Do they complain to you that they don't have more friends? Oh, no, I just, you know, I just want them to be liked by everybody. Okay, well, first of all, nobody's liked by everybody, you know, <laughs> number one. Um, and number two, maybe that's what works for them. Maybe one really good friend is all that they need. Um, so, you know, what you have in your mind might not be what your child needs. And so really talking to parents about that as well. I understand the concern. Like if your child is being bullied, if your child doesn't have any friends and they want, they want friends, you know, those are all the different things. Let's talk about that and make sure we're bringing in the right people to support. Um, but I think it's setting expectations and making sure that we're not putting our expectations onto our child and what we assume we want our child to look like at this, at this age. Um, but also giving the parents the support, a place to vent because yes, teenagers are hard. You know, they are just hard. I don't have a teenager yet, but my daughter is nine and I feel like we're going into that tween stage and I'm getting little hits of it once in a while. And I'm like, oh boy. I got my work cut out for me. Um, but I do work with a lot of families who have teenagers and it is, it's hard. It's exhausting. So having a safe place for parents just to be able to vent and complain about their child. It's not that they don't love their child. They love them so much. They just need that opportunity to get that frustration out to somebody else. Um, and then kind of coming up with a plan. What can we do in the now? What can we do for your child specifically? I think is really important. Oh, you had a lot to say on that. I'm so glad I asked that question. Um, <laughs> So I want to circle back to the parents again, and then I want to talk about life beyond high school. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to talk about self-care. That is um, obviously big buzzwords in the world these yep. days. COVID has taught us a lot um, about how we don't do enough self-care, how we should be doing more. Self-care, though, has come to mean some different things for mm -hmm. people. Like mm -hmm. sometimes it's seen as the all about me thing, like yep. me days, me this, me that, me this, me that. And it can become a very selfish sort of thing. Yes. Um, at, at least from a, a perspective of it taking it too far. But 
there is now, again, not every family has this, but lots of parents with kids with disabilities deal with a high level of guilt. It's a very strange (laughs) feeling. I mean, Mm -hmm. every parent can tell you about parent guilt. Totally. About the bad parent days and the parent epic parent fails. Mm -hmm. We have all got those stories. Absolutely. If they're honest enough with you, they might share them with you and you may be able to, to, to kind of giggle over some of them. Yep. we we know that kids kids drive you to the brink of your coping skills. Oh, they know how to push sure. those buttons they for do. sure. Yep. And they push them in a nanosecond. Oh, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> for sure. But there is a certain level of guilt associated with having a child with a disability, even where none should be. This guilt of I did this to my child. Absolutely. I somehow got a cold when I was pregnant and did this to my child. I might have been exposed to something or other. I did this to my child. I was a stress case during my pregnancy. I did this to my child. Yep. Um, I did this and therefore don't deserve to be cared for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you address that a little bit? Because again, until that's dealt with, Mm -hmm. Parents are not going to be able to truly care for themselves or do the self-care that's required to be able to present themselves as the best parents they can be for their child Mm -hmm. and or other people's children. Because again, your child has friends and they're in your house. Welcome to the world of community parenting. You are now going to be involved in that. You are a part of someone else's village. So how, what would you, what advice would you give them around that? So I I love that you mentioned that. And I honestly, I haven't found a word I like better than self-care that just kind of fits it. But I remember when, when Henry was really little, if somebody asked me, what are you doing for self-care? I would get angry. Like I truly thought self-care was a bad word because it's like, what do you mean? What am I doing for self-care? When do I have time for self-care? And if I did have time for self-care, there's 8 billion things that I've got to be doing in my day. I much, I have to be doing that stuff. I mean, even when I remember when my daughter was an infant and they'd always say sleep when the baby sleeps, that never worked for me. I mean, it never worked for me because I was constantly like, oh, I need to be cleaning house or, you know, I could be, um, you know, doing some getting caught up on work or yeah, it just felt like there was always something I needed to be doing. And I think a lot of that society pressure, you know, it's just like we live in this society where if we're not constantly busy, then we're being lazy. Um, and so I think taking this, this thought of taking time for myself when my child needs so much help or, you know, my family needs help. My child's sibling has been kind of ignored lately. You know, there's just that guilt goes on and on and on and on and on. We could always be doing something more, always be doing something better. And so when I'm working with families, I really try to, let's not look at self-care as a spa day. You know, I think that's kind of like the, the idea of self-care is like, oh, you can go to a spa and you can take the entire day. Or if you're lucky enough, you can go for a weekend somewhere. That's great if you can do that, but that doesn't solve your self-care issues. So how can we incorporate small acts of self-care throughout the day? And it can, you know, and I talk about meditation. It doesn't have to be meditation. It can be breathing. It can be anything. But I talk a lot about, a lot about that with my families. And if meditation feels overwhelming to you or just taking time to breathe, then let's start small. Let's, let's look, let's look for 20 seconds. Let's look for a minute. You know, it doesn't have to be the super long thing. What can we do while you're brushing your teeth in the morning? 
um, that can incorporate a moment of, of, of relaxation. Um, so it's finding little ways that can incorporate self-care. I think that's so important, but then getting even further into the guilt, it's like, well, how can I give myself this when my child is struggling or, you know, the house hasn't been cleaned or there's this chore list is building up or I've, you know, I've missed a few meetings because of my child's, you know, I'd take my child to the doctor's office or therapy or whatever, you know, all those things make us feel horrible. And so I want to kind of get to the, when I'm working with families, I want to kind of get to the bottom of, of why do they feel that guilt? You know, let's really, let's, let's dig into it. Why are you feeling guilty over this? And, you know, oftentimes it'd be like, well, because there's so many things that get done. Okay. Well, what would happen if none of that stuff gets done for the day? What if your house isn't, you know, miraculously clean? What if, you know, the dog doesn't get to go for their third walk of the day? What if that didn't happen? What would actually happen? And more often than not, nothing would happen. Life would still go on. People would still come and go. You know, things are going to be just fine. But we've built it up within ourselves to make it seem like, oh, the world's going to end if we don't do this, this, and this, and this. And so it's just stepping back for a moment and saying, okay, what would happen if you let your spouse or your partner or a family member watch your kid for an hour? You know, I get it. You're super stressed. The thought of that, it just makes you, you know, stress out. It just sends anxiety through your body. Okay. Then maybe start with 15 minutes. Can you do that? Can you allow yourself 15 minutes to get out of the house or go up to your room, shut the door? you know, take a shower by yourself, even though I don't think showers are a luxury, but sometimes they can feel that way. Sometimes, um, you know, it's, it's really getting to the bottom of why do we feel that guilt? And if, if, if we don't do it, is anything bad going to happen? Is anything going to change drastically? Um, and I think that's really getting to it. And if it, if it is going to change or if really something bad is going to happen, let's, let's work through that together and figure out what, what can we do to support you in those situations? So nothing bad will happen. I love that. And I think too, there's a, a redefining of, of self-care. I remember hearing people talk about doing like morning meditations and I thought it sounded amazing, but mornings are complete chaos in take my house. Total chaos. Yeah. yeah. Total chaos. I'm like, uh, Oh, take 20 minutes. I'm like, I'm lucky. I get five, right. I wash my face, get me dressed. And then I got to handle all the other stuff. Like that's a, that's a good morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Fine. Exactly. So 20 minutes to sit and do something <laughs> quiet. Sure. No, the house will yep. absolutely burn down around me. Absolutely. So, but I remember feeling like, well, if I'm not doing that, then something, you know, like I'm doing something wrong. And mm-hmm. how can I, how can I look at this? And it actually took somebody else redefining for me what that meditation could be. Mm-hmm. So I, I love to sew. I'm a quilter, love to sew. Yeah. And she would say to me, how do you feel when you're sewing? And I said, that's my processing time. My fingers yep. are busy, but my brain can relax. Mm-hmm. And, and she said, well, that's your meditation. Absolutely. And I thought to myself, oh, mm-hmm. so now I've started looking for ways to incorporate that. I haven't done it for a few days. And I found myself thinking today, oh, tonight I actually might get to sew for 20 minutes or nice. half an hour. And that's part of my filling my bucket. That's my mm-hmm. self-care. That's just for me. That's mm-hmm. my time. And if I only get 20 minutes, then still that 20 minutes for me is very refreshing and replenishing and all that. Yeah. So redefining 
Like you said, when my child was little, he had colic and he Mm -hmm. screamed all the time. So for me, that shower was a luxury. That was Mm -hmm. 15 minutes. I didn't have to handle the screaming. Yep. And somebody else was doing it and I could, I, sometimes I turned on music, so it was loud and I didn't have to hear it. Didn't have to hear anything. Yep. Didn't have to hear anything. And Mm -hmm. that was my, just my little bit of my dedicated time out. So I would encourage families um, and any legacy maker to look at how can you redefine that? Mm -hmm. How can you redefine that self-care? And then how can you fit it into your life? It's not what everybody else is doing. Exactly. It's what would work for you. Mm -hmm. And then how can you work that in? Mm -hmm. And really it's, it's, yeah, like it might be that walking the dog is your time out. Yep. Maybe that's it because you're outdoors, you're in the sunshine, the fresh air, the snow, the rain, whatever the weather is doing. Mm-hmm. Maybe you love all those things. My younger son loves the rain and loves to take the dog out and get soggy. <laughs> Not my idea of a good time, but he loves it. Yep. Right. Yep. And so recognizing that, recognizing that as much as your child needs some accommodations, yep. so do you Absolutely. as a parent. That Absolutely. you might need to look at things that little bit differently that's going to help you be able to navigate your life better. Yeah. Um, so I love that you said that and thinking about maybe you do do it on a much smaller scale than yes. everybody else in the world tells you you're supposed to do. Yes. Uh, that you can build that scale as your child's skills and your family's skills and your community around your child's skills grows. Mm-hmm. You're going to feel more confident and comfortable that your child is not going to be a heaping mess. Um, yes. Your child is not going to burn down the house or, or do something awful to themselves or somebody right. else. Right. Right. Like those things, those fears can be reduced mm-hmm. and then you can increase the time that you get to do some things that you quite enjoy and exactly. that fill your cup up. So I think too, that's again, that's a place of hope to live into, right? What can I do today? It might be washing the dishes is your time out. Now I would not consider that a luxury, but I wouldn't, but, but for some people, they love that, you know, right. Put your hands in that warm water, yep. feeling like you're accomplishing a task when all day you feel like you accomplish nothing, which is such a huge feeling Absolutely. in the special needs parent world, mm-hmm. right? That sense of um, repetition. It's just an activity that you do. It's not something you have to spend a lot of time thinking about, right? Exactly. It's you something accomplished on your to-do list. It might be a time where you know, somebody else is looking after your child or they're quiet or they're sleeping. And that's just, you have that peace and quiet for a few minutes, Mm -hmm. like all those things. It's not a luxury uh, by any means, but it might be that, that, that helps you make it through the day. And so finding that self-care to redefining the self-care to what works for you can be an extraordinarily liberating experience. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, one of my favorite self-care things, activities that I just, I feel that sense of accomplishment. I feel very Zen when I'm doing it is organization. I love to organize. I remember my friends and family always laugh at me. They're like, you should walk around with a label maker. And, um, I mean, cause I just, I love to organize. It's like my favorite thing. And other people look at me like, you're crazy. How is that your self-care? But it's like, what well, that, that's what works for me. And And then there's stages where I go through where I'm like, I don't even want to think about organizing, you know? And so I think letting parents know too, that your self-care is going to ebb and flow. And I love how you said, you're like, I haven't been able to, you know, um, knit for a few days. That's totally fine, but you're going to try to do it today. And guess what? If you don't, that's okay. 
you, there's always tomorrow, you know, it's not the end of the world. And I think that guilt is so just ingrained in us that we feel guilty. It's like, well, I, I told myself I was going to go for a walk every single day and I haven't been able to do it yet. That's okay. Not the end of the world. There's always tomorrow. And if maybe, and maybe that's just not going to fit into your schedule right now. So maybe we need to relook at what is going to work for you and maybe a walk, maybe you don't like the cold months. So maybe a walk isn't a good, a good fit for you, or maybe you can only get a walk in at six in the morning, but it's dark out and you don't want to go and walk by yourself in the morning when it's dark out. So let's find something else for you. So, it, you know, self-care can be so many different things. It can be a minute. It can be 30 seconds. It can be as long as you want it to be, but it's just finding what works for you and nobody else. Absolutely. Um, you just made me think of something that uh, we came up with as well. Um, because again, I'm looking at my son being at home, his needs were great when he was very small. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a lot of things that I couldn't leave him to do. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I love to dance, I love music. And sometimes in the middle of the day, I would just turn on some like dance tune. And he and I and his brother would just like <laughs> dance our little booties off. Yep. And it wasn't a time out per se. I wasn't separated from him, but it was a time of just joy. Yep. Giggles and laughter of, you know, watching them do dance moves. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it was just jumping up and down and it, you know, it helped to reset everything mm -hmm. um, for the day. And so again, it can be something as small as that. I still enjoy like my kids and I, we listen to music, we dance in the car and they're much older now. Yeah. As a way to just kind of find a joyful moment, especially mm -hmm. if the days are heavy and many yes. of them are yes. um, to find a way to, if you can't be apart from your child, how can you do something that is fun with your child? Absolutely. Right? Something that is in their area. Maybe for some people it's quiet coloring. My kids were not quiet and coloring mm -hmm. pencils are great. <laughs> Um, projectiles. <laughs> yes. Oh gosh. It's going to yes. work for us. Yes. But for other people, it might be, maybe it's coloring a picture with your child or putting yeah. together a puzzle. It's those moments where the dis in the disability is not the top priority, mm -hmm. but it's, it's the ability, it's the quiet, it's the peace, it's the bonding moments that allow you to have those moments of joy yeah. that yeah. can bring forward, like change the whole trajectory of the day for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that that's what you were talking about. Now, let's talk just a little bit about life after high school. Because sure. so many parents, <laughs> you know, we focus on their children are little, it's what do we do to get them ready for school, then the transitions in school, elementary, middle, high school. Mm -hmm. And then there's the big bad looming life after high school. Absolutely. And and not a lot of people are talking about that, but it is big. What is. advice or suggestions would you give some parents for a when to start thinking about and working toward that? Mm -hmm. Be how to do that from a place of hope. Mm -hmm. Great question. So as to, as far as when to start thinking about that, I say as soon as possible. Um, something I'm a big believer in is is not doing every little thing for our child. Because I think if you do that, you're setting your child up for failure later in life. And so, you know, for example, my son is almost seven. You know, I'll ask him to clean his room. 
for example, he may not do it exactly how I would want a room cleaned or, you know, clean the kitchen counters or whatever it may be, but he's still learning a task and how to do something for himself that is going to benefit him for years to come. And I think that's number one is push your child to their limits. Like obviously don't push them more than they can handle, but do encourage your child. Know that your child is so capable of doing so many things. And I really, it frustrates me when I have parents come to me and they say like, oh, I don't let my child do the dishes or I don't let my child do any errands around the house or, you know, things of that sort. It's just, well, why not? Well, because I like it done a certain way, or I don't think they're capable of doing that. And I, if I ever hear that, which I do hear it once in a while, I'm like, well, hold up. Your child is very capable. Yes, they might need some accommodations to make that task easier for them, but they are so capable of doing it. And so I think if you haven't, start now. You know, give your child a chore chart. You know, that visual chart is so valuable no matter what age. And, um, and have them check it off when they complete it. And again, it might not look like what you want it to look like. You know, there's times I go into his room and he makes his bed. And I remember the first few times he made his bed, I was just like, good try, buddy. You know, that was a really good try. But now he does it. I mean, he's like the professional bed maker in the house. I mean, he'll make the guest bed and he'll do all the beds and it's, it, he loves it. He loves it. And he's so good at it. Um, but if I didn't let him try those things, then he would never have learned. And then he feels so, he feels so proud of himself when he's done it too. Like that's the other thing you're denying your child that ability to feel really pride in themselves, which is so important. So I say start soon. Um, when your child's around 14, 15 years old, that's when you want to be working with the school system to really be thinking about what is life after high school going to look like. So you definitely want to be talking to their IEP. You want to be talking to transition services. So as far as that goes, you want to be around 14, 15. Um, and I wouldn't wait any longer, um, to, to really start working on those things. And then as far as what you're, what's going to look like for your child, that's going to be different for everybody. And I think, again, know what the options are. You know, I know a lot of kids that are very capable of going off to school and, and, you know, furthering the, their education, but it may not be a four-year degree. It may be a community college. It may be, um, you know, something else. They might go get, you know, coaching and something, whatever it may be. It doesn't have to be a four-year university in order for them to be successful. And, you know, start looking at housing options. There's so many different housing options. Does your child want to be independent? Can they be independent? Maybe they can be set up with a roommate. Maybe, you know, maybe they can be set up with a host family. There's so many options out there. And so that's the thing is just educate yourself on what's possible and what does your child want to do? And what do you want to do too? I mean, I've had some parents come to me with a 25 year old kid. They're like, I need them out of the house. Like I can't take this anymore. So like, all right, let's, let's work on that. What does that look like for you? And what does that look like for your kiddo? Um, and so just knowing that there are options out there again, changing your expectations, that's so big, but also giving your, ch your child all the options that they deserve and knowing that they are so capable, they have the ability, you just have to help them sometimes. And sometimes it's going to look a little bit different than what you, what your expectations are. 
Such profound advice. I I love that. I love that everything you've said um, over the course <laughs> of this you. podcast has been filled with hope and optimism and truthfully, legacy makers live in that space. Um, and I don't mean that that's an easy life. I mean, it's yeah. an act of choice to live in this space, to those check yourself moments of, oh, this doesn't feel very optimistic to me. Maybe I yeah. need to change up what I'm doing. So I hear that in everything you're saying. And I'm hearing uh, that. And if there's nothing else that comes out of this podcast, I truly hope that some parent listening to this takes away these gems of wisdom and starts looking at their child through that lens of hope and optimism, not what won't be, but what can be. Exactly. And uh, whether you have a child with disabilities or not, it's nice to look at your child that way with the lens of hope and optimism. Absolutely. But if you have a child with disabilities, for sure, that's an important skill set to start developing that that lens of hope and optimism and how can I help them get there? Um, And I love that everything you've shared is so powerful and, and can really be very supportive and helpful to families. So if someone is listening to this and they would really like to connect with you, what's the best way for someone to reach you? Yeah, great question. So the best way is just to go to my website and schedule a call. And that's www.mountainsummitcoaching.com. They can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Love it. So if you didn't get a chance to write that down, because maybe you're driving and if you are, don't take your hands (laughs) off the wheel to write anything. That's right. Don't do that. (laughs) No distracted driving around here. Um, By all means, check the show notes. It will be down in the show notes and you'll be able to access it there. And I highly recommend connecting with Erin to start to have a conversation and see if what she does could be a good fit for you, or if maybe she can direct you to someplace that would be a good fit, um, or some services or books or whatever to check it out and go check out her website. Cause she's got lots of amazing information there. Erin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I really enjoyed this conversation. I love talking to people who live in an optimistic space. I love surrounding myself with people who work to be optimistic in their own lives and in the legacies they're creating and in the legacies they're helping other people create, because that is one of my values and goals is to be surrounded by that. And I hope that other people uh, in our listeners group are going to find that optimism there and have you help raise them up today. So thank you so much for the gift of your wisdom and your time. Oh, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Awesome. So folks, again, reach out and connect with Erin and see if she's got some things that can really help and support you. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please submit a rating and review and share it with a friend. Together, we can inspire more people to start living their legacy too. And let's keep the conversation going. We would love to hear all about your journey in living your legacy and support you along the way. Join our Facebook community, Living Your Legacy Podcast, where we connect, collaborate, and celebrate each other. Can't wait to see you there.